FOMO. For me, it wasn't, there wasn't conviction. You know, I, I, I liked the product and it worked, but I didn't see what Jordan saw. Jake did. Jake saw what he saw. And, and for me, like I didn't have any, I was super insecure. You know, I, I was like the first few months of super coffee, I was training for the military. You know, I was, I was literally there as the big brother to make sure my two little brothers didn't screw up, screw up their lives. And then once I realized like, wow, this is difficult and challenging and fun. And we're, we're actually having an impact on people, you know, customers would come to us and say, I'm a type one diabetic and I've never enjoyed sweet coffee before. Thank you guys so much. Like this is something I've always dreamed of. And it was that kind of impact that I was like, wow, this this is something bigger than just a, a project in a dorm room. You know, we can actually impact a lot of people if we grow this thing to scale. That's Jimmy DeSico, the co-founder and CEO of Super Coffee. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. With the world spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is a show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO sapiens. I'm so glad to have you here on the show this week because today I have a guest who is, I'd like to say, a bit of a unicorn. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jimmy DeSico is one of that rare breed of people who starts a company right out of college and hits it big the first time around. But that's kind of a family thing for him, actually, considering the fact that he started the business with his two younger brothers, who at the time were both still students. Incredible. So that makes three, four, three, and the DeSico family, that's a unicorn. Now, five years later, the brother's company, Super Coffee, is valued at more than $200 million, and it's the fastest-growing food and beverage company in the country, according to the 2020 Inc. 5000. And fun fact, the Seco brothers appeared on ABC's Shark Tank back in 2018, and they got turned down by the sharks. But as you will hear later on, one of the future investors in the business was actually watching that episode and reached out cold call to see if he could get into the company and invest. In fact, at this point, Jimmy and his brothers have raised over $50 million from a really interesting group of people, people like Jennifer Lopez, A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, Aaron Rodgers, Baron Davis, Patrick Schwarzenegger, Anheuser-Busch, and even WeWork. And in the interview, Jimmy's going to talk about his classic encounter with WeWork founder Adam Newman. Little sneak peek, he wasn't wearing shoes, but are we all that surprised at this point? So yeah. Very interesting story. And all of that would be good enough to be here on the show. But the real reason why Jimmy caught my attention was because I read an article about him in the Wall Street Journal. And the headline was this. New York City coffee startup tamps down bro culture by hiring philosopher. A locker room vibe was brewing at Super Coffee until the founding brothers hired an ethical risk consultant. That move right there is masterful. It's different Bringing an ethicist into your company to figure out your culture and avoid problems, I don't think I'd ever heard of that before, and I wanted to hear all about it. And so we're going to talk about all of those things with Jimmy today, and we're also going to go a step further. I'll be talking to that very ethicist. His name is Reed Blackman, and the next episode of FOMO Sapiens After Hours, that drops on Monday. Now, if you haven't yet listened to After Hours, you might be asking yourself, what is After Hours? After Hours is 
an opportunity to talk about things that came up in the interview that there was no time to get to, or things that we learned from the interview and get deeper on certain topics. My idea for After Hours, and we'll be evolving it, is that it is a snackable piece of content you can listen to at the beginning of the week that'll give you practical tips, new insights, things that we talked about in the on the episode, but we didn't necessarily get to go into deeply, and that we can explore current events and all kinds of other things. And so it's a, it's a great chance to touch base on Mondays, a shorter format, and I look forward to hearing from you, your ideas, what you think of it as we go forward. And now, onto the interview. As I prepped for the discussion with Jimmy, I read that he liked this quote from Mike Tyson. The quote is this, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's some wisdom. And in fact, Jimmy says that that quote convinced him that he could start the business without having prior experience as an entrepreneur or in the coffee industry. So to get our interview started, I asked him to unpack that and explain exactly what he meant. You know, that Mike Tyson quote, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. I think I see all, all too often entrepreneurs sh- suffer from paralysis by analysis, right? Where they're sort of sitting there waiting and, and uh, dr- drafting up this plan and these dreams and this, this, this go-to-market strategy. But once you actually launch your product, it's a lot different than, than how it is on paper. So I say start selling before you're ready to and, and let the market validate and then innovate and iterate from there. Okay, so that sounds good in the back in the, in the rear view mirror. Right. But as we think about those early days, when you decided to get this going, I imagine it wasn't that clear, right? I imagine you were trying to figure out what to do. How did you even come up with the idea of this business? Like what, why a coffee that's better for you with your brothers? My youngest brother, Jordan was actually the the founder. It was his idea and it was a solution to his own personal problem. You know, he was the starting point guard at, at Philadelphia university 5 a.m. practice, late nights in the library. Kid was tired. You know, he wasn't a great student, so he needed extra energy in class. And the only thing his school store offered was the Starbucks Frappuccino that had 40 grams of sugar and 300 calories and didn't really give him energy. So he started making coffee for himself with no intention of starting a company. He, he, He added protein. He added healthy fats from coconuts. He added monk fruit to make it good without any sugar, make it taste good. And, and it worked so well for him that he started selling it to his classmates and his coaches and his teammates. And then he took a step back and he realized he solved a problem for himself. And he wanted to realize how, he wanted to see how many other people face the same problem. And he realized that the bottled coffee industry was a $2 billion category growing faster than any other beverage category. And uh, he was like, wow, if, if we can dethrone the Starbucks Frappuccino or steal share from the Starbucks Frappuccino by, by making a product that tastes good, but is also good for you and gives you energy, we have a very viable business here. And he decided to drop out of school, forfeit his full scholarship. And he called his two older brothers, me and my brother Jake, and said, boys, I'm, I'm starting a coffee company. I, I mean, I just wanted to let you know. And I think me, my, my sort of paternal instinct kicked in and was like, well, let me come help you for a little bit just so you don't screw up your life. And uh, five years later, I'm still, I'm still here. <laughs> and was it as simple as that? Like, what was the thing that gave, well, first of all, gave you the conviction that you should actually, you and your brothers just go and work with it? For me, it wasn't, there wasn't conviction. You know, I, I, I liked the product and it worked, but I didn't see what Jordan saw. Jake did. Jake saw what he saw. And, and for me, like I didn't have any, I was super insecure. You know, I, I was like the first few months of super coffee, I was training for the military. You know, I was, I was literally there as the big brother to make sure my two little brothers didn't screw up, screw up their lives. And then once I realized like, wow, this is difficult and challenging and fun and we're, we're actually having an impact on people, you know, customers would come to us and say, I'm a type one diabetic and I've never enjoyed sweet coffee before. Thank you guys so much. Like this is something I've always dreamed of. 
And it was that kind of impact that I was like, wow, this this is something bigger than just a, a project in a dorm room. You know, we can actually impact a lot of people if we grow this thing to scale. Uh, and, and I think I scratched, I, I, we, we found that challenge very fulfilling. Now, you also came in, this is pretty slick, man. So you come in, it's your brother's idea, and then you come in and become the CEO. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... Congratulations! As a younger brother of my own of my own family, I'm super offended by that. But I imagine you guys had a lot of a lot of conversations about this. So, as you think about starting a business with your two siblings, like part of me is like, that's brilliant. You know, it sounds great on paper. It's a great marketing hook, all these sorts of things. But from a day to day perspective, like there's a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong. There's a lot of opportunity for conflict, for misunderstanding, for emotion. So, how did you guys, as you were setting up the business, think about the three brothers, what you would do and how to make sure you created a structure where you would get along instead of end up in some sort of conflict. Great question. And, and it goes back to that the Mike Tyson quote, like we didn't have a perfect plan when we started. You know, we everything we've done, even today, we're building the ship as it's flying. So in the early days, three of us did everything. We made deliveries. We printed invoices from QuickBooks. You know, we stocked the shelf. We made the product by hand. We all stepped up and did that together. And uh, we were all I mean, we all come from the same background. We shared the same values, you know, the same family. Our, our mom taught us to work hard and be nice to people. And that was what made it fun to work with each other in those early days when we were just grinding. And uh, I, I think as the business got bigger, we raised money. We started to hire people. Our personalities, are, even though we're super close in age, share a lot of the same same interests. Uh, our personalities are very different. And naturally, we found ourselves sort of gravitating towards an essential third of the business that was also something we were passionate about. So for me, I mean, we needed investment capital to, to, to fuel to fuel the growth of the business. I loved networking. I loved making connections with investors and advisors and alumni. So I, I naturally stepped into this investor relations role and this fundraising role. Uh, Jordan is the product guy. He's the innovator, the operator. He loves what goes into the product and how it's made. So he runs operations, right? He's creating the product that we sell. And then Jake is the sales guy. He's carefree. He's disorganized, but he's super compassionate. He's fun. He's the life of the party. Party, and he was selling super coffee to anybody and everybody. So naturally, we divided and got very clear with what our specific roles were, because I think where a lot of founders go wrong is they try and, and work on the same things together. And that's when anytime our roles overlapped or there was ambiguity between responsibilities, that's when tension would happen. You know, like there couldn't have, there could have never been two CEOs or there could have never been two people trying to work on the same thing because there's no accountability in that in that system. Now, did you actually sit down together and say, okay, fine, we've been doing this for a while. Things are starting to come together. We need a, we need a structure. Let's actually sit down. Like you guys all live together. You just told me before we, were, we started taping. So you sit in your apartment, you, you pull some chairs up around the table, you open up your, your bottles of super coffee and you just say like, let's make sure everybody knows what they're going to do. Like, how did you, did you actually do that? Or is it, did it just kind of happen? It was, it was more physical than that. So I'm, I'm actually the strongest brother. And I just I got them both in headlocks. And I said, look, boys, this is how it's going to go. Uh, no. It, um, yeah. I mean, it was ne- there was never one meeting where we said this is what it's going to be going forward. You know, I think certain things happened where it naturally we naturally sort of fell into our positions. And one of them was um, after Jordan dropped out of college. A year later, his his head college basketball coach called him back and said, hey, man, we need you. Like, we need you to come play. And at that point, like the business was kind of rolling a little bit. Jake and I were, were start figuring things out. We were starting to hire people. Jordan was still f- working full time. And Jake and I said, look, dude, like one of the things we missed the most, Jake and I were both graduated college athletes at this point. 
And we said, one of the things we miss most is playing sports. Like, George, you could run this business for the rest of your life, but you'll never be able to play college basketball again. So go back, play hoops. And that's when we sort of, up until that point, Jordan was still the CEO. But we decided as a family, as three brothers, that it, it's too, it would be too difficult for Jordan to be a full-time student athlete and still be the CEO and have the fiduciary responsibility to the investors that we just brought on. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. It's fascinating. I, I, as, as I'm listening to this story, I f- I'm sort of like sitting in the, in the, in the seat of like your, your mom, right? You just mentioned her and thinking about like, yeah, if there was one kid who had dropped out of school and didn't get to finish either for the acad- the academic experience or the athletic experience, I was like, oh man, I really wanted to go back to school. I'm curious, as you were building the business in the early days or even today, do you was there something in your upbringing that sort of pointed to the fact that you were going to do this? A lot of times we see that people who become entrepreneurs do so because they they are modeling behaviors that that they see from their parents, right? Mom or dad was an entrepreneur or grandparents. Did you grow up in a place where being an entrepreneur was was just kind of one of the things that was on the table for you to do? Or was this completely different than what you were raised in as a kid? Yeah. So a little bit of both. You know, we, we were never exposed to startups or the entrepreneurial journey. You know, our mom worked at the YMCA. Our dad was a construction worker. So like I, I until we started this company, I didn't know what the term startup was. But the reason I say both, like my mom and dad both played sports in college. We came in a super competitive environment you know they they were always supporting us and encouraging us to play different sports we were undersized athletes so we had to work hard to to sort of get play football in college and and basketball in college um but my mom and dad they had me when they were 23 years old and they had jake and jordan all before the time they were 25 you know so they had three kids bang 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 and nobody got them like they didn't know what they were doing right they just got out of college and my mom figured out how to raise us. She did a hell of a job, but she was like just winging it, you know, and, and she was always there for us. She did everything. She she brought us to school. She cooked us dinner. You know, she she, she worked out with us. Our dad was there, too, you know, like every step of the way. So I joke that like the way our parents raised us was kind of like a startup, a scrappy startup, sort of figuring it out as they went. And, and uh, I mean, my parents were super proud to send all three of us to college and watch us play sports our whole lives. So the way our parents raised us actually enabled us to, to build this organization. You got started at Whole Foods and you did something that reminds me, we just had on a couple of weeks ago, Kara Golden of, of Hintwater, who I'm sure you know. And she tells a story in her book about basically her first client was Whole Foods. She develops this water that's, if you haven't listened to the episode, everybody go back and listen to it because it's great. She develops this water in her house 
She then takes it to Whole Foods. Her first customer is Whole Foods. Pretty, that's a, that's a nice way to start out. And, and when I was reading about you, I basically, you did the same thing. You came up with this. You had, your brother had been experimenting with this formula. You come up with this, you decide to commercialize it. And then, you know, you, instead of just sort of um, taking a very cautious approach, you go to basically the best place you could be, which was Whole Foods, right? So how did you convince them that they should carry your product? Yeah, so Whole Foods was our first customer, and and this was back in 2016 before Amazon acquired Whole Foods. But it wasn't Whole Foods Global; it was one store in Washington D.C. When I say global, like they're headquartered in Austin, Texas, and and if you go down there, you get a meeting; they could put you in all 500 Whole Foods. So we show up to one store, and corporate Whole Foods corporate had nothing to do with it. You know, we found the store manager, and the reason I say it before Amazon is because Whole Foods used to have a local program, and basically all you needed was a sponsor or an advocate that was a store manager to say, hey, this product's unique enough. Uh, it was the Whole Foods right near Georgetown's campus. Jake was a senior at Georgetown at the time. And the guy was like, look, product's pretty good. It's different enough. But if you can get your college friends to come from the campus to my store, I'll take your product in. And that was like, that was the, the inch we needed. This dude gave us an inch. We took a hundred miles. We got on the shelf. We broke that store's weekly sales record in the first four hours. Wow. You know, we were there just pouring samples every single day. We were stocking the shelf, pouring samples. And because it was the only store we had, you know, there was only we, we super coffee was only sold in that one store. And that went on for a month. My brothers and I showed up to that store every single day for a month. And we took that sales data and we went to the next Whole Foods down the street and we said, hey, man, look at what we're doing up the street. If you give us an opportunity here, we can do the same exact thing at your store. And that's how the first 18 months went. We went from store to store to store and we wouldn't move from one store to the next until we were the best selling bottle of coffee. So, I mean, it was a simple strategy. It just took a lot of effort. Yeah. Sometimes it takes the effort, right? you got to prove the point. And even if you have to maybe give it a little extra push, so be it, because you're, you're seeding your customer and building your market. Now, you just mentioned Georgetown, and obviously as a Georgetown alum, I love that, and your brother went there. And there's another interesting thing that you did with the Georgetown community, which is that uh, I was reading your brother through Georgetown and sort of networking events, met one of the senior executives at WeWork, Artie Minson. And then WeWork actually came in and invested in Super Coffee sort of early on. And then you were sort of all in on WeWork. You had an office at the WeWork and you were, you were, you were actually, um, the coffee was, was, was given out at the WeWork to people so that they could experience it. So it's like a perfect marketing channel. And that's a great way to start. Now we all know what happened there, right? WeWork, <laughs> it's been a little tricky more recently. And so I wonder as somebody who was very close to WeWork and very, very exposed to that culture and the way they did business and to their business model, like what have you learned watching what happened to WeWork yourself as an entrepreneur who wants to achieve some of the good things they did, but also avoid the things they did that didn't work out? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, man. And it was, it was really cool growing up with like building our business at the time we work was sort of peaking and it's it's funny they just came out with a, a book on adam newman the, the founder ceo of we work called billion dollar loser and we're actually quoted in that book a couple times as as just sort of investments that, that adam was proud of uh but i think some of the key lessons there uh we work was was more uh, positive for us than than anything because we saw what this guy was able to create in such a short amount of time, you know, and it's not that Adam Newman was a con artist or a bad person. He convinced some of the smartest people in the world, like uh, Masayoshi Son from SoftBank and Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan, you know, some of the brightest minds in business 
to believe in this vision that, that he had. And that was super inspiring for us because that is what enabled us to take on Starbucks and Dunkin' and Coke and Pepsi. You know, it's like, wow, if this guy can just do this through belief and vision and passion, we can do the same thing on a much smaller scale within our industry. I think where Adam went wrong is he got a little power hungry, got a little carried away, you know, because the, the effort and the actual reality of that vision needs to, to be brought to life through the through the work and and. Um, like actually, actually doing things, and I think I think Adam and, and the story of WeWork is sort of the beginning of this bubble that we're about to see pop, uh, just because there's so much venture capital in the startup world, and a lot of companies are are getting huge valuations that that don't really have the sales or or the product or the IP to to back it up. Um, so I think I think the the market's going to correct itself. The private market for, for for VCs and private equity. I mean, even this year, I mean, it was such a frothy market on the and the capital markets that some of these private equity funds are looking to deploy capital, and brands like us are still getting ridiculous valuations. So um, I think few will be able to to put their money where their mouth is and back it up. Yeah, uh, Jim, I've been calling the top of the VC market for 15 years now, so I've given up on that. But it's interesting as you talk about Adam and. What he built. You're right. I mean, I was an early member of WeWork. So I was there in the second ever WeWork. And I remember loving the business and thinking it was awesome. And then over time, like the sort of the rhetoric around WeWork completely was disconnected from the experience. Cause for me, it was an office space. It wasn't like a new way to live my life. And I didn't really need all that other stuff. And so when, when I saw the valuations, I thought, well, this is a little silly. It's going to get crazy. And it took a while. I'm curious, do you have any good, uh, do you have any good Adam Newman stories for us? Yeah, yeah. So the connection that you mentioned, Artie Minton, was the, the CFO at WeWork at the time. He was the president CFO. And, and Jake met him at a networking event at Georgetown in 2017, which was our second year in business. We were, I think we did $500,000 in sales that year. And Artie was like, hey, I love your story. Come on up and, and pitch pitch me at at uh, we our, the headquarters in Chelsea here. So Jake goes up. He's all excited for his meeting with the president of WeWork in this big, uh, this big conference room at WeWork. He's talking about Georgetown, how we got started, how we built the brand in, in a couple of WeWorks in Washington, D.C. And uh, all of a sudden, this this guy walks in and we didn't know who Adam Newman was. This guy with long hair and a T-shirt looked like a, a disheveled college student comes into the room and sits down. He was barefoot, too. And Jake's oh like, God. who is this guy interrupting my meeting with the president of WeWork? And Jake let him let him disrupt his, him for a minute. But he gets back on pitching already. And uh, sure enough, at the end of the meeting, the guy stands up and he says, here's what I'm going to let you to do. I'm going to I'm going to allow you to live in my buildings for free. I'm going to allow you to work in my buildings for free. And I'm going to invest one hundred thousand dollars into your business. Now, please get out of my office. I have to meet with Artie. And Jake was like, oh, my God, what just happened? You know, like it was a home run for us. The fact like we were going to get a discounted rate on our office. Like that was Jake's goal in that meeting is to get a discount from Artie and Adam Newman comes in and, and disrupts the whole thing. That's amazing. And it actually, I've, that's kind of awesome. And you kind of, I'm excited for you as you tell me that story. I mean, I can totally see in that moment how you're like, holy mackerel, we have just hit it. I can only imagine that this was this moment of external validation that you probably, you know, it just kind of flipped the switch on the business. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel. 
the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, you, you didn't stop there. So you ended up doing a bunch of fundraising. The company is now valued on, you know, in your last fundraising round at more than $200 million. You've got investments from people like Anheuser-Busch. You've got some celebrity investors like Green Bay Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. You've got an investment from actor and, you know, multi-hyphenate Patrick Schwarzenegger. Now I was messaging with Patrick on Instagram. I really do my research. And so it's random. I don't know Patrick, but I just sent him a note and I said, Hey, I heard you're an investor in super coffee. Um, what should I ask Jim? And he said, ask him the story of how he joined forces. So I want you to tell me how Patrick Schwarzenegger ended up investing in your company. So we, we pitched on ABC shark tank back in 2018, February of 2018. And Patrick, he's the son of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver. Um, 27 years old. He's an actor. He's a model. He's a, a movie star and investor. Uh, he happened to watch that episode and he, he, was so impressed by the three of us on that episode. We didn't get a deal from any of the sharks. We didn't get an offer from any of the sharks. Patrick found us on Instagram and he, he DM'd us. He said, Hey, what's up? My name's Patrick. I, I love your business. Uh, I do some angel investing on the side. I'd love to, to learn more about your product and, and your vision and see if we can join forces. Um, so that's how it happened. I mean, we were stoked, you know, we see Schwarzenegger's name pop up in the, in the, our DMs and we're like, wow, this is, this is awesome. That was bigger than that. That message from Patrick to us was bigger than, even if we got an investment from any of the sharks. And we met Patrick at a, a cafe in New York City a few months later, and, and uh, he decided to invest in the business. And, and he's invested a couple of times since then. Uh, and I mean, we've, we've grown super close as friends, as business partners, um, and, and as colleagues. So he's, he's been an awesome advocate for Super Coffee. So Patrick is a 10% entrepreneur, which is always good to hear. Now, I'm curious, you think about folks like Aaron Rodgers and Patrick, We've had other guests on the show who've had celebrity uh, folks on their cap tables, and you have also Jennifer Lopez. What is the value to you of having those types of folks in your company? Like, how do you engage with them? What is it that, that they bring to the table? First, we, we only work with athletes and celebrities as, as investors. You know, we don't believe in endorsement deals. I don't think endorsement deals are smart for small brands. You know, that you're, that it, when you get into the game of endorsements, paying people for their image, it's, you're competing with the multi-billion dollar brands who do that for a living, right? Pepsi, Coke, Super Bowl commercials, Mountain Dew, that type of thing. And, and for us, uh, we've, we've been very fortunate. Aaron Rodgers, J-Lo, A-Rod are all at a point in their career where they don't want to be known for their celebrity anymore. They want to be known as business people for coming in and, and using their creativity or their business acumen to, to help grow brands. Um, so for us, it's more it's more about collaborating with them as, as business folks and, and accessing their network, their influence, rather than their brand. You know, J-Lo, J-Lo's got 135 million followers on Instagram. She posted about Super Coffee announcing the investment a couple months ago. And it got like a million likes. It, it, I think it drove like 60,000 people to our website, but it didn't move the needle at all. 
you know, and, and things like that, like the New York minute is very real. People see things like that and they forget about it. They move on uh, versus our ability to call a rod and say, Hey, can you get us in touch with the president of Anheuser-Busch? Because he's also involved with Presidente, a beer owned by Anheuser-Busch, you know, like the ability to leverage somebody like Schwarzenegger or a rod or JLo is I think access to their network, you know, I, I like to say influencers influence other influencers, you know, so it's not that we're using them to sell more coffee. We're using them to get in front of the right people who can help us grow this thing. That makes so much sense. And I, you know, I don't think I've ever heard it put that way before, but you're right. People who operate at that level of the game, they're always super smart on top of being talented. You know, you, you're not going to find somebody who's killing it in one industry or the other in showbiz who's a complete moron. Like you have to be smart to be successful. I've learned that over and over again. And the chances I've had to, to, to interact with folks like that. But the thing is one post on Instagram or one interview on TV or whatever that thing is, we talk to entrepreneurs all the time on the show. There's never just one thing. And so thinking about how to see these influencers as ways to meeting other people who may not be in show business, but could drive your business, whether it's distribution or whether it's other types of exposure makes a ton of sense. Now I want to shift gears here to an interesting decision that you made that I, I really appreciated. And it's the first time that I was exposed to you. So I spoke at a conference last year and I met this guy called Reed and Reed had, uh, had been in an article in the wall street journal. And the title of the article was New York city coffee startup tamps down bro culture by hiring philosopher. Okay. So this was about, there's this article that was about the fact that you recognize, and I think this is admirable. You recognize that the, the business you were building had a culture that in the moments that we've lived recently, for example, the me too movement, because this was a couple of years ago. Now, this is not even, you know, a 2020 event where I think a lot of people started thinking this way. This is 2018. You said, listen, we have a situation here where we could have a problem and we need to get on top of it before this gets out of hand. And so you decided to bring in an ethicist in order to make sure that you had a culture that would be inclusive and that would make sure that you didn't have the kinds of problems that you saw in other businesses at the time. So take me through how you knew that you wanted to do this and how you decided to get in touch with Reed Blackman to actually come in and work with your company. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, man. And you really do do your research. <laughs> uh, so this was, uh, so it's funny because I, I studied philosophy at Colgate University. And uh, the reason I chose philosophy as my major is one, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But two, I thought some of the smartest professors in the school were philosophy professors. You know, I took a couple intro to philosophy classes as a freshman and I was really inspired and, and moved by the professors. Um, so I, I took a, a, a course. Reed was a professor at Colgate and I took an ethics course with Reed. I liked it so much that I ended up taking three or four more courses with him and uh, graduate from Colgate. Say goodbye to Reed. Think, I mean, it doesn't really cross my mind much other than as a friend, as a, somebody who I enjoyed working with in college. And then I see on LinkedIn that he announces, hey, I left my, my teaching career. I'm back in New York City. I'm starting Virtue Consultants to, to work with businesses around ethics issues. And I was like, wow, if I, I, I enjoyed learning so much from Reed that if I can introduce him to our team and have a similar impact, that'd be phenomenal. So Reed and I sat down and this was right at the time we were closing our Series A. And with that, uh, we, I knew we were going to scale quickly. And I also knew that my brothers and I had never done this before. You know, I, we weren't we, we were we were more student athletes than we were business professionals or corporate leaders. OK, so you started from a good place, knowing what you don't know. Where did you go from there? 
we built an ethics statement. You know, it wasn't a mission statement. It wasn't a vision statement. It was an ethics statement about how we wanted to treat our team, how we wanted to treat our customers, you know, what, what, what was important to us as an organization. And then we held ourselves to those standards by some of the actions that we put in place based on the ethics that we defined with Reed. And how have you known that that's successful? Is there some way that you can sort of measure the impact of the work that you did? Yeah, I think it certainly uh, it certainly had a positive effect on recruiting. You know, we our, our culture is clearly defined and it's sort of eminent in the, the folks that we hire. So we attract people who work hard and be nice to people. We attract people who share the values that we feel. And that is one way that we've successfully scaled the culture is by being clear about who we are and where we're headed. We automatically attract people who are, are sharing those those values. So I think the biggest impact it's made is is in recruiting. We talk about this with so many companies, mission driven companies on this show. It goes beyond culture. It's about vision. And when you when you actually think about the ethics of a business, which by the way, very few people do, it can permeate not just the way that you run your business, but the type of people that you involve as well. And we'll be talking to Reed about how they did this work next week on FOMO Sapiens After Hours. So make sure to check that out. We're gonna go deep with Reed on this topic. You can find Super Coffee on Instagram at Drink Super Coffee. You can find Jimmy on LinkedIn, Jimmy DeSico, and on Instagram at Jimmy DeSico5. Jimmy DeSico, thanks for being here. Thanks, Patrick. This was awesome, man. FOMO. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO.